thought capital. No cash changes hands. Energy justice, tax incentives, environmental concerns, resource taxation, highly competitive. Australia is missing out. The social disorganization theory. We cannot think of China as just one big market. Hello, I'm Michael Pascoe. Welcome to Thought Capital, the podcast that delves into the wealth of ideas created by the experts at Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. First, the good news. We're living longer. Now the bad news. We have to pay for it. On present trends, by 2050, 8 out of 10 people in the developed world will be over 60. Diseases are being cured. Living standards are improving. We're staying healthier for longer. Uh, But to pay for our way of life, we need to stay productive, to stay workers. The Australian economy cannot afford to keep an ageing population out of the workforce. Yet companies are almost always looking for younger talent when they recruit. Many people are made to feel redundant at work because of their age. In terms of age discrimination formally, it's a relatively small number. In terms of age biases and age inequalities in workplaces, we know that it's endemic. Doesn't seem like the business world is adapting as well as our demographics. Two experts who know a lot about ageing in the workplace are Professor Gavin Jack and Associate Professor Kat Riek, both from the Department of Management. Welcome to Thought Capital. Now, look, you're but kids, you know, barely Gen X. What made you interested in ageing? I think ageing's in everyone's interest to look out for in terms of uh, workplaces. But more importantly, I think it's about having productive conversations about who we include in workplaces and who we celebrate in workplaces. And likewise, who we might marginalise inadvertently or deliberately in our practices or our processes or even our day-to-day attitudes and perceptions about what makes a good worker or a productive worker. That sounds like a little bit of sociology, but of course you're into management. What makes it management? In a recent report by the Australian Human Rights Commission from 2015, which surveyed over 2,000 workers over the age of 50, 30% of the managers in that survey said that they took age into account when making decisions about recruitment and selection. And that was taken into account in a negative way. In other words, saying well, um, what we seem to have here is an older worker. Perhaps that's someone that we don't want to employ. Perhaps they're more expensive to employ. Perhaps they are less up-to-date, less capable. And these are the sort of myths or the stereotypes that seem to pervade this debate that managers need to grasp a hold of so that their unconscious biases potentially don't affect sound decision-making for organisations. Now, that sets a number of hairs running in different directions. You're saying that management who are over 50, actually discriminate against workers who are their same age? Well, what they're saying is that, indeed, they're making decisions where age is a, is a criteria that comes to the fore in the decisions that they make. There's evidence, of course, for unconscious bias. Um, there's plenty of academic evidence for how that works in influencing decisions. But this is a much more explicit sort of owning up to way in which age may play a factor in decisions that are making. For me as a researcher in age, that's one of the exciting dimensions about age as a really complex phenomenon. Not everyone who's 50 will be classed as an older worker. Usually we're talking about people where their identity may be intersected or related to gender, to ethnicity, to possibly their socioeconomic position as well. We find the people who are affected by age discrimination are those who are of uh, lower socioeconomic groups, 
are usually uh, female, uh, they may be part of a minority status. So when we talk about the older worker, we're not necessarily saying it's directly aligned with your chronological age. It's about how people perceive you and the power resources that you hold and also the position you hold in society as well. I've been around as a business journalist for a long time, observing management. Forgive me if I have a fairly cynical view of it. Management tends to follow more often than lead. Is management simply behind the economic reality of the changing workforce? Is it actually still with a mindset of kind of jobs for life in the one corporation as opposed to people swapping jobs all the time? I don't think it's a case that management are necessarily behind the trend um, or indeed that they're going to catch up with any trends about the ageing population. I think it's more about we tend to assume that talent looks a particular way and the image that we have is that talent is going to be that bright young thing coming out of increasingly a business school and is going to be able to um, mould themselves in the way that the organisation wants them to look like, as opposed to coming in as a slightly older worker and bringing what the perception is, as a baggage of uh, perceptions or ideas of ways of doing things. So I think the larger debate is more about we expect to have these green workers which we can shape in the way that we want them to shape as opposed to these individuals coming in who may carry biases or ways of doing things that aren't amenable to our organisation. Now, with all respect to the Monash Business School, um, graduates know nothing compared with people who have actually been in the workforce for a fair while. I'm showing my age, obviously, (laughs) my own discrimination. What's the reality in terms of what management needs to have? I think the really interesting question that you raised there is the idea of intergenerational tension there where we hold expectations about what people who we may not see ourselves as being like have in terms of their qualities and and capabilities. And we know that intergenerational tension is an increasingly um, problematic aspect of life where we have younger workers, for example, worried about older workers holding up their promotion potential or their ability to get a job. And likewise, we see older workers feeling that they've worked for their entire life and then the pension that they were promised isn't there or younger workers coming in and not respecting their skills and experience. So I think it's part of a larger larger issue surrounding intergenerational tensions. Okay, that tension exists within the workforce. What should enlightened management be doing about it? One of the challenges for organisations is how to rethink career models, to diversify those career models and to project them forward from 55 through 65 into 70 as well. And then to think from there about what are the sort of training, development needs of workers and managers, how would a physical and psychological aspects of the workplace be adapted to meet those different needs and motivations for an age-diverse workforce? Until you just mentioned 60s and 70s then, we were still playing in the sort of 50s area. Mm. Uh, Let's just stay in the 50s Mm. for a minute. How common is age discrimination there? In 2016-2017, there were just over 150 formal complaints about age discrimination. But really what we're looking at there is the tip of the iceberg in terms of how age inequality manifests. So on the one hand, we have age discrimination where laws have explicitly been broken because age has been unfairly used on account of um, a decision being made in the workplace. And on the other hand, we have broader, more insidious age biases where there's been subtle perceptions or um, distinctions being made that have in turn marginalised people on account of their age. So in terms of age discrimination formally, it's 
a relatively small number in terms of age biases and age inequalities in workplaces. We know that it's endemic and it's it's growing particularly in the current economic crisis where they're seen as increased competition for jobs, for example. And how much of the manager's discrimination is based on economics? I I look at journalism, an industry under threat, older experienced people are more expensive, flick them, hire some kids. Is it that basic as well? That would certainly be something that comes into play, as as I mentioned earlier, around managers sort of owning up to age being a factor in decision-making. The idea that an older worker is more expensive can be, from a sort of cost or efficiency point of view, a core reason perhaps not to engage them. Plus an incredibly narrow way, of course, of thinking about maximising one's best talent within the organisation. But that the wisdom and the knowledge that come along with that can actually be a greater benefit to the organisation and perhaps outweigh any costs that you might have in mind at one at, at their initial decision-making point. How do you teach management to overcome its innate biases and backwardness? Corporates and public sector organisations seem to be investing a lot of their money here is around unconscious bias training and looking in particular at how that may play out in the recruitment and selection. Going back to the Australian Human Rights Commission report from 2015, they're pointing to two areas where age discrimination seems to be an issue. One is within workplaces themselves and through career and promotions, assumptions and lack of inclusion within the organisation but more of a problem around that recruitment and selection issue. So it's partly training around surfacing unconscious biases, busting myths and stereotypes perhaps around um, older workers, and then from there reframing the value that an older worker can bring to the organisations and to start to promulgate those more positive narratives and images around the older worker. There's also an issue in terms of management and the future of management and the future of leaders in terms of how we are teaching or training or educating the next generation to think about work and how we're going to address these grand challenges. So if we think about ageing, it's a grand challenge that's affecting us globally and it's not enough for our future leaders and managers to say, that's all very well, but we're going to hire the best young talent. So age diversity is for everyone else, not for our our top companies. I think it's about um, setting up responsibility for the future of the workforce onto the current generation. Let's move it on a decade or two. There's already discrimination against the 50 pluses. A lot of common commentary about you lose your job when you're 50 something, it's hard to get back in. Take it on that next couple of decades. What's the difference there? Perhaps using some of our research around this might be interesting. So the research that we've done around women's health and well-being, particularly women over the age of 55 plus, the data there suggests that as those women age, their mental health improves, they're more committed to the organisation, their work engagement tends to be higher, and they tend to be more satisfied with the work that they're doing. And that's especially so for workers who are 60 plus and even more so for those few that we've managed to survey who are 65 years and above. So there's this interesting positive correlation that seems to happen around the older the the worker gets in this case those women that we've um, we've surveyed across universities and also in hospitals in Melbourne too. Why? So if we take positive psychological health for instance some women and this certainly comes up in some of the interviews that we've done feel that they're perhaps juggling a little bit less 
perhaps under fewer um, instances of acute stress that they might be in the mid-40s or early 50s, for example. They may have different sorts of caring responsibilities, but also in their interviews, a greater sense of more control over their lives and a destiny that's perhaps shaped by their own needs and interests later on in life, rather than those of partners or children or the multiple others that are important for women at any point in time. So that greater sense of, I think, autonomy, of working for oneself and of making purposive choices that fulfil those needs is certainly something that would correlate with more positive mental health. Uh, There's a figure around saying for the first time in Australia, most workers aren't in a full-time job that actually has leave entitlements. The gig economy, the independent contractor. What happens to the whole structure of our normal society or what used to be our normal society? Where does ageism come into a, a gig economy? I think the the kind of increasing precarity of labour and the precarity of the economy has huge implications for age discrimination. On the one hand, it may be that you feel people have the choice as to what work they do and when they do it. Um, I don't buy that that myth. I think it's about people not being looked after and people expending a lot of their energy in labour um, and in turn they don't get much in exchange. So I would say one of the huge challenges we have in terms of the gig economy is really looking towards what that's doing to people's future in terms of thinking about their superannuation and their career futures as well, how they plan or are able to plan their futures, both in terms of their jobs, but also more broadly in terms of their lives. Ageism, is it getting worse in a digital world? I mean, I think the point of having children is to have someone to be able to program your TV for you at a certain age. But... Does the revolution in technology tend to work against those of us who aren't teenagers? Looking at the evidence, it's more about perception than actuality. No, I I can't program my TV. (laughs) I do need... Sorry, keep going. There's two issues when it comes to play. Of course, there's a huge stereotype that older workers are hesitant to change when working with technology and so on and so forth. If we actually look at the evidence, that's not the case. And there's two reasons for that. One is we know that the way that we encourage people to learn about technology is usually orientated towards a young person's perspective in terms of Generation Y or a millennial. So what you'll often find is it will be a millennial or Generation Y writing the instruction manual. And they're orientated to technology in a very different way. They've grown up with technology. That doesn't mean that they're ipso facto less or more capable than a baby boomer, for example. So I think one of the issues is making sure that we encourage development and training in a way that is written in light of a baby boomer's perspective surrounding technology. The second dimension in terms of the digital economy is I think it's going to have implications not only for older workers, but also for younger workers as well. And it's really going to have to make us reimagine what a career looks like. So that's not just for older workers in terms of a later life career and what might be called a second or third career, but also in terms of those who are going into the workplace in their 20s now will more than likely have to work until they're 70 and are going to be facing roughly four career changes throughout their lives. And then throw in the ever-present threat of AI taking off. Um, The robots are coming. I think the robots have always been coming, haven't they? And you just wonder if they're actually finally catching up with us. I certainly think that's a new frontier um, for management thought that requires 
research and thought about well, what was the nature of this challenge going forward and how can organisations and governments best best leverage the opportunities there, but also better understand what are the threats. Is it too early to say whether the, the digital natives will handle it easier or not? We seem to be forgetting in this argument is that organisations are made by people. We have control and we have the power to to change the way that we think about management and change the way that we think about organisations. And if we look at the history of management, people have been very creative and imaginative in how they've actually done that to make sure that people have meaningful jobs that they enjoy, that they can um, gain fulfilment for as well as being financially rewarding in some way for themselves and for the economy. So the next generation of management is going to look different. The next generation of organisations is going to look different. How can we make sure they look different in a way that that makes sure that work is meaningful for people and that people enjoy their job and can be in that job for a long time? How do we write in that bigger picture of age discrimination internationally? You know, Australians love to rank themselves. Are we better or worse than average? Australia is aware of the ageing demographic and they're aware of coming up with positive solutions to the challenges that may emerge. If we look at organisations in the global north, for example, um, so North America, majority of European countries and so forth, we're all kind of facing these grand challenges. What we find is the enduring problem is interpersonal perceptions and biases and organisational practices. So time and time again, we're coming back to these small day-to-day conversations that either promote or marginalise people on account of an unfair marker of their age. And there are countries that are ageing a lot faster than we are. Japan, Italy, uh, obviously, the workforce, the population shrinking. They've got a greater imperative to start to get it right, haven't they? I think it's not a problem to be solved. The ageing demographic means that we're going to have to alter the way we think about organisational life, the way we think about careers, the way we think about retirement, for example, and certainly the way we think about intergenerational relationships. And this should be seen as an opportunity. And it's an opportunity that managers, and we look at a vast majority of managers, don't put into the too hard pile. They're willing to take up and think, well, how can we actually productively engage with this in a way that is going to make our company successful, in a way that is going to benefit our company and our stakeholders? It comes out time and time again in our studies and also in others in this area that that line manager in the immediate work environment, if anything, is the key lever. Final area, as we move on, people in the 60s, people in the 70s, and who knows where it all ends, physically do workplaces have to change? Is there a message for management in that? Certainly. I think there's there's opportunities for organisations to think about their workplace design, the physical layout um, of the organisations, as well as the psychosocial aspects as well, the extent to which social interaction is encouraged, how a community is built to create meaningful work relations too. And there are certainly some quite straightforward things that organisations can do around reasonable accommodations or adjustment to the physical workspace, how a workstation is set out, for example, enabling a less sedentary uh, working style, perhaps, encouraging people to stand up more, move around more. The concerns that we have to be aware of is that there's increasing rates of burnout, increasing rates of mental health illness due to the work intensification of younger workers. If we're expecting them to work into their 60s, 70s, possibly 80s, we have to make sure that there's not going to be a gradual accumulation of psychosocial, mental and physical ill health that's going to mean that they're not going to be 
um, able to work into those, you know, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s decades. So I think age management, if we want to call it that, is not just about focusing on the here and now of older workers in our workforce. It's about thinking about how are we going to ensure that all our workers grow up and older in a way that is sustainable, both to the organisation, but also to the individuals themselves. There's a particular aspect of ageing that you've both been looking into researching. Menopause affects half the population, more than half the population at that age. Um, It's not part of the general debate. What has attracted you to it? What have you found? In terms of what attracted us to it, I think there are two answers to that question. And one is quite personal and the other one is is more about our roles as, as academics, I suppose. So the personal reason is that we've we've done this research in, in team context now for a few years. And uh, one of our um, research team members, Dr. Jan Schapper, who's sadly passed away now, it was actually her initial idea. And it took place over a cup of coffee and just chatting with us about her own experiences of being a menopausal woman at work and attempting to have a conversation with her line manager, who was a male at the time, about perhaps some of the the trickier aspects of um, having hot flushes in the workplace, particularly in meetings, where it became only too visible that she was experiencing some of those um, symptoms. And she had quite a negative experience in terms of trying to open up a conversation. And so Jan asked us, well, has there actually been any research done on women's experiences of menopause in the workplace? And how managers can perhaps have productive conversations that don't cause embarrassment and further anxiety for the female employee. And we looked at some of the literature and found that whilst there's a lot of medical and psychosocial research, the actual workplace context, the environment of work, its physical and psychosocial dimensions, how those shape women's experiences, there was very, very little that had um, been conducted on that work. So partly the work is personally driven. Um, And partly it's also a a wider professional interest in workplace diversity and gender equality. So the way in which um, health and health episodes are experienced at work is gendered. The sorts of health episodes that men and women have may well differ. And those then tell us something about the way in which gender discrimination may intersect with age discrimination at work. And your research found there is um, a two-way relationship between women's experience of menopause and the workplace. So um, we conducted survey work um, in three universities and then subsequently in three hospitals. And we were trying to understand whether there seemed to be a relationship between the frequency of reported symptoms, so hot flushes and night sweat, sleep disturbance, and work outcomes. So there's a relationship between those symptoms, for instance, and how committed a woman is to the organisation, how satisfied they are with their job, how engaged they feel at work, whether or not they intend to leave the organisation within the short term. And we found that there was a significant relationship between those. In other words, the more frequently and the more bothersome a particular symptom was reported to be by those women, the less engaged they felt at work, the less their job satisfaction was, the less committed they were to the organisation and the more likely they intended to quit the organisation as well. And that's the first study that's found those relationships between, I suppose, symptoms and work outcomes. I think one of the most important things that came out of our research was the the two-way relationship. So yes, menopause and menopausal symptoms may affect people's relationship with work 
and the work outcomes, as Gavin said. But at the same time, the workplace can have a significant effect on people's experience of menopause as well. So it can exacerbate people's experience of hot flushes. It can worsen people's um, lack of sleep or sleep-related symptoms. It can make them feel stigmatised at work. It can marginalise them in the workplace. And I think picking up on those two dimensions where we don't just simply say menopause affects women's productivity it's more about saying actually workplace conditions negatively impact women's experience of menopause and actually if we look at what the research was telling us there's a number of things that organisations can do to stop or at least lessen those negative consequences such as usually modifiable factors in the workplace that may not necessarily be um, expensive for organisations. The first is that women were saying to us that um, we would like, first of all, more information about the nature of menopause itself. Um, Some of our interviewees expressed the fact that even going to the GP, some of their doctor's own knowledge about menopause could be quite sketchy. So workplaces are, in fact, potentially very important sources of information that allow women to better understand what might be going for going on for them at that particular point in time. Is that is that fair to put a societal educational problem onto management? Shouldn't we have ads on TV rather than education program at work? I would say yes, but more. I would say, of course, it's part of a broader social education, but we have to accept that actually work constitutes a key part of people's identity and also a key part of people's lives. People are spending, you know, up to six hours a week in in their workplaces. We know that organisations have broader wellness agendas because we know that well and happy employees are more productive employees. So therefore, organisations have a sense of duty or even responsibility to look after their employees. And this may be, as Gavin said, giving them information about what might happen and giving them information about what may happen to their partners uh, later on in life. And being an inclusive place where we can acknowledge different stages and episodes in a way that doesn't necessarily make it a conversation about performance or a negative conversation so that's the first thing the second thing is that women consistently said we do not want a menopause specific policy to be introduced into the workplace because that would shine a spotlight on a personal experience that perhaps we don't want to have so instead the suggestion here would be to think about introducing menopause into part of the wider health and well-being or healthy ageing strategies or supports and resources that an organisation may already have in place. So that would be the second thing that came out that was important. Probably two others to say. We found, particularly for the large number of women who experience um, hot flushes and night sweats, that there are simple things that organisations can do to give women more control over the temperature of the workplace environment. So simple. Oh, hang thing. on, this is dangerous area. <laughs> you know, in all the world's wars, the one between the air conditioning of blokes in coats and girls in dresses is never going to be resolved. And you're making it more complicated by bringing menopause into it. Well, it's perhaps not just a divide between men and women, but also between women in in shared office spaces themselves. So an organisation could provide discrete desk fans, for example, that could be used because it is much more difficult, of course, in a shared office space to have any one person perhaps asking for temperature control. We found that those women who did have access to control over the temperature of the workplace environment reported fewer and less bothersome symptoms than women that did not. It's not just about the small 
aspects. It's not just about being able to control your temperature. It's not just about being able to procure a fan for your desk without you know, filling in 10 forms in an organisation and having to speak to two line managers. What it's about is an acknowledgement and an ability for women to control their environment in a way that allows them to be productive and allows them to be happy in their workplace. So on the one hand, it's about the physical symptoms of menopause. um, On the other hand, it's about the symbolic aspect of making it a friendly place for menopausal women to work. The vast majority of women we spoke to didn't see it as problematic that they were menopausal women in the workplace. The challenge came when organisations started to see them as problematic in the workplace. And I think one of the things, no matter the context or the sector or the industry, as soon as you start labelling and framing people as problems, you're going to find problems. And until you manage that, the trick is to employ older women and you'll take over the world. Professor Gavin Jack, Associate Professor Kat Riek, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Thought Capital from Monash Business School. You can find out more at monash.edu forward slash impact. If you enjoyed Thought Capital, also listen to Just Cases. Just Cases is the show about the biggest legal cases you've never heard of. Every day, law courts make decisions that change the lives of those present in the room. Some decisions change society itself. You can find Just Cases on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud. Thought Capital is produced by Tina Zanu. Editing and post-production by Nadia Hume. Technical support by Gareth Popplestone. Executive producer is Helen Westerman.